And together, mitochondrial and Y chromosome studies showed that the, this Clovis first model was not correct, that the last common ancestor of, of Native Americans, both maternally and paternally, lived long before Clovis. Um, and, and that when you actually model population histories and population movements using these kinds of data, they did not match the model for the Clovis first thinking. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Jennifer Raff. She's an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Kansas with a dual PhD in anthropology and genetics and many years of experience in researching ancient and modern human DNA from the Americas. In addition to her research, she's been writing on issues of scientific literacy and anthropological research at her own website, Violent Metaphors, and for The Guardian, HuffPost, Forbes, and Evolution Institute blogs for several years. And she's here today to talk about her book, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Rochelle. It's so great to be back on. So I do want to start with the origin story of this book, in part because I personally am always kind of interested to hear about how scientists decide what parts of their working or research life to write about. So where did this book come from? Well, it's it's kind of funny. Um, I had never intended to write a book. I'm a geneticist and anthropologist. And for us, our currency, our academic currency really is papers, not books. But um, I was passionate about science communication and writing for the public. And so I had written about issues in my field and latest research and, and, and other topics for, for several years at different venues. And at some point, I started writing for The Guardian uh, for a sadly now gone blog that was um, on archaeology called The Past and the Curious. And uh, that was a wonderful experience. And what I didn't realize when I was writing it was quite how large that audience was. <laughs> it was a little intimidating. Um, but also that it turns out literary agents read those types of uh, forums. And uh, one of them read my articles and, and liked them. And his name is Will Francis. And he reached out to me um, and, and, and asked if I was interested in talking about writing a book for the public. And, you know, that's the sort of experience you don't say no to. <laughs> and so, we worked for a long time and kind of uh, identifying what topic I might write on. And, you know, then I wrote a terrible, terrible draft of a proposal and he gave me notes and we went back and forth. And after about a year or so, I had a proposal written and we kind of took it from there. He took it. He went and sold it to a wonderful um, press. And uh, I started working with um, an editor on this and it took me a really long time to write this book because I was going through the the process of, starting a lab and going up for tenure and having a baby. I mean, it was, there was a lot on my plate, but eventually it got done. And, uh, and that's the result. I also often want to ask scientists that question you just answered a little bit, which is how on earth do you fit writing a book in? <laughs> it was not easy. In fact, it was kind of agonizing. Um, I was I, I basically went for four years without having any hobbies, without exercising properly. I don't really recommend that. Um, and, and just kind of the, my book was my my hobby. And um, I spent a lot of weekends in libraries hiding from everybody trying to work on it. Um, my family was very, very supportive and took, did a lot of you know child care and house care and took things off my plate so that I could hide and work. Um, and, you know, it was... 
just kind of one day at a time working on it. Some days I wrote a page, some days I wrote a sentence, but I just kept moving forward a little bit at a time till it was done. Taking away at the mountain one by one. Yes, exactly. It's very much like writing a dissertation for for those in your audience who have experienced that. (laughs) (laughs) Same kind of project, really. Yes, yes. So, and I think you tackle this a little bit in the book, but why does this question fascinate us so? The question of how and when the first people got to the Americas. And there's a part of me that thinks that because I grew up in North America, part of my answer to that is it's just a bias from having grown up in North America. Of course, we want to understand how people got there, but it does feel like the question gets a lot of attention. Yeah. I'm not sure I have a complete answer to that. Um, I think there are a couple of different reasons. So definitely growing up in North America, where European colonization is is really intertwined with the question of who uh, who the first peoples were. I think that that there's there's definitely that um, that theme that underlies a lot of the questions that we ask, and it's an old this is an old old theme, right? This has been going on for hundreds of years, where the the question of who the first peoples were has been really relevant to um, shaping the identity of a lot of um, North America, especially the United States and the identity there. But for that, I think that's so that's underlying everything. I think for the average person who lives in the United States or Canada, you know, there's also this um, interest in who um, who the ancestors of Native Americans, Indigenous peoples are. Uh, if you're non-Native, um, you're interested in, you know, this question. If you're Native, obviously, you know, these, these answers. Um, and I think that people are fascinated by the material culture. They're fascinated by the archaeology in, in the Eastern United States. They're fascinated by the mounds. I really was. Um, in you know, in the Southwest, you know, the, they're fascinated by um, uh, Pueblos and all these fascinating, these wonderful um, structures and, and petroglyphs. And, and then, of course, you know, you have other um, really tangible evidence of people living in the past, you know, all across the Americas. And I think just the questions of uh, the question of who these people were, who they who their descendants are today, I think that just um, just really grips people in in, in these um, emotional ways. But I think that there's also another answer to that question, which is um, there's a lot of really bad information out there. There's a lot of pseudo archaeology and a lot of like these alternative histories floating around. And every time you turn the TV on, it seems that the history channel has another program on the mysteries of the ancient, whatever, you know, and, and it, and it's all really, really bad. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's quite harmful sometimes. Um, And so when it's presented as these mysteries, I think that that sparks interest. Um, But it's unfortunate because we have plenty of information about who the first peoples were, who their descendants are today, and what their lives were like. And it's, you know, we have plenty of archaeological information, and now we're starting to get plenty of genetic information about the biological histories. And again and again, when we look at that that information, we see that these weird myths that are presented to the public are, are, are just incredibly wrong. Um, anyway, it makes me mad. And so <laughs> I found that I write best about topics that make me angry. So that, that was another motivation for, for me writing this book. 
Um, it's one of these things I sort of forget about now that I live in the UK because I don't get the History Channel anymore. Uh, but uh, you yes. mentioned it, and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, the History Channel yeah. with so much promise and so much disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Unfortunately, Netflix got into the act recently, too. They've been... They've- yeah publishing a lot of drink. So anyway, yeah. It's another it's really conversation. Fun. Yeah, another <laughs> thing. <laughs> so I do want to get into a lot of the the details in your book because it's so filled with some really fascinating details uh, that we don't often get to hear um, in any other spaces, uh, including things like the History Channel and Netflix. Um, but because there's no way we can get detailed into absolutely everything, I do want to start, if we can, with a kind of 24,000 foot view of the, let's call them the big story beats of how humans populated North America, just so that everybody sort of has the same big map, time timeline or map to look at, and then we can start to maybe drill into some interesting bits and pieces. Sure. Okay. So I'll start with <laughs> me being in graduate school. No. Um, so <laughs> if, if you're my age or older, um, you probably learned a particular story about the peopling of the Americas. And that story would be that the the continents were peopled by this small group of intrepid hunters who they hunted big game, these mastodons and woolly rhinoceroses and other extinct bison and other extinct animals from the late Pleistocene. And they were in Siberia and they raced across the Bering Land Bridge, which would have been a connection between Siberia and present-day Alaska. And they raced down, they raced across this land bridge and they following these, these herds of big game. And they found when they got to North America that there's this massive ice sheet blocking um, you know, any any further movement, except that in the center along the Rocky Mountains, there would have been um at about 13,000 years ago a path along the Rocky Mountains between the ice sheet. So the ice sheet was had melted back far enough so that there was a um uh, a route into the rest of the Americas. And so they raced, they traveled down that that corridor and peopled the Americas about 13,000 years ago. Um, so that was what I learned. And, and they were car- they were the bearers of this particular kind of um, suite of artifacts that are characterized by a very particular kind of projectile point that is bifacially flaked. So f- flaked on both sides. And it has this Flake removed, that's called a flute. Um, and this is, anyway, these are called Clovis points. Um, and they would go on the ends of spears with which people would hunt these, these animals. And um, that was taken as evidence of the very first peoples in the Americas. And they show up, these Clovis points and associated artifacts show up across North America about 13,000 years ago, give or take. And so that those were the first peoples. That's where they came from. And that was the story. So what we know now, um, is wrong, that it was wrong. Uh, We actually, there's been a massive amount of evidence that archaeologists have accumulated showing that there were sites in the Americas and evidence of people before 13,000 years ago. So we call those pre-Clovis sites. Um, And for the, in the last decade or so, geneticists have been um, getting a new source of information, DNA, from ancient and contemporary individuals that helps us fill in the biological histories, which show us that people were here 
also before Clovis, and we're starting to get a better sense for that. So today, broadly speaking, there are several different perspectives on the peopling of the Americas. Depending on what kind of evidence you prioritize, you might follow, you might fall into a category of, of supporting one of these models. Um, and they're quite different. So one of the models supported by one group of archaeologists um, still maintains that this the first people who arrived in the Americas were came rather late, so not much earlier than 13,000 years ago. So this is kind of an update of the Clovis first model. Um, a second group of archaeologists are on the complete opposite extreme, and they see um, evidence at pre-Clovis sites for presence of people in the Americas very, 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 very early, like as early as 130,000 years ago. Uh, that was actually published in Nature. <laughs> um, we can get into that later if you want. Um, I think this is a very, very small group of archaeologists. Most archaeologists and geneticists don't, don't agree with that, that particular perspective. The majority of archaeologists and geneticists would interpret um, the totality of evidence as showing people being present in the Americas by about 15 to 17,000 years ago. Um, some might say as early as 25,000 years ago, but sort of in that range. Um, and then, of course, indigenous peoples' histories, they have their own histories that have been transmitted orally for many generations, and, and they have their own histories of their own origins. And these are quite diverse. Um, some of them agree with the archaeological and genetic models, and some do not. Um, and so depending on which kind of evidence you prioritize, you, you would probably fall into one of these different groups. And I am happy to get into the genetic evidence and what that shows um, next, if, if you'd like. I definitely want to get there, but I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of difference of interpretations of the evidence and different definitions of rigor, um, because I think that's a fascinating aspect of uh, these fields in general, but also these questions about the peopling of America in particular. Um, because we generally think about science as something that can give us quite precise answers or quite clear answers, but we have um, a lot of difference of opinion and different ways of interpreting evidence. And you talk in the book as well about these kind of different um different perceptions of rigor and what kinds of evidence people are willing to accept versus what they decide to discard. So can you dig into that idea a little bit in particular, the the different definitions of rigor that start to make this field complicated? Yeah, it's really fascinating to me. And it's something I think I've luckily become more flexible about, more open-minded about rather than less open-minded as I've gotten more experienced um, as a scientist. Uh, because it's very it can be very frustrating if you think you know, you think you know how to interpret the evidence. So you're like, it's this way. But actually then you come across people who have very different interpretations and that can be quite frustrating. But so I've kind of in the process of writing this book really taken a step back and, and, and acknowledged that, well, you know, people will look at the same evidence and come up with completely different interpretations and that's okay. Um, so it's, what's really interesting to me about this, and I am not an archeologist at all, but I have been struggling with understanding the archeology. span um, And what I've seen is that a lot of archeologists interpret these 
interpret the archaeological record of the Americas in very, very different ways. And that's not because they're, um, it, it's archaeology is hard, <laughs> to put it mildly. And when you excavate a site, you you are effectively, you can only excavate that site and that particular locality once. Um, I mean, you could go back and re-excavate, but you've lost a lot of that information. And so it's very important that you provide others with as much information as possible. And people who want to learn about a site um, excavated by their colleagues have to read the literature on it. And, and, and they may find, you know, problems with your excavation or your interpretation of the results. And it's just very difficult, I think, to, um, to reconcile these sometimes. So the particular problem with the Americas is that there are some very early uh, claimed sites, very early presence of humans in the Americas, like let's say pre 30,000 years ago. And those are generally identified as archaeological sites on the basis of um, not something that's super clear, like a hearth or a human skeleton, but things like broken stones, which may which have been which are claimed to have been flaked by people into tools, and they're not like fluted projectile points, like we were just discussing. They're like broken stones, and so the question is: Are they? Is that sufficient evidence of a human presence, or could those rocks have been broken a different way? Um, and that is very, very hard to reconcile sometimes. Um, I think that a lot of times, you know, we can misinterpret things that look like stone tools when actually they've actually been broken by natural processes like water or falling off of cliffs or, or even the actions of primates like monkeys in, in Central and South America have been shown to actually break rocks. And that can really confuse things. So how do you how do you interpret broken rocks? Um, and, and archaeologists have various ways of doing that, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that. So I have to just talk to archaeologists and see what they think. Um, so some of these very, very early sites, um, pre-30,000 years, are claimed to be evidence of humans in the Americas, but they're not convincing to all archaeologists or even most archaeologists who will say, well, you really need more evidence of a human presence there than these, than these broken rocks or whatever. Another problem that can crop up is maybe you have clearly clear, unambiguous evidence of humans, but the dating can be tricky or the stratigraphy can be um, ambiguous. And, you know, we can get into it more later if you want, but that's one of the, the, issues raised with this incredible site um, at White Sands Park in New Mexico, where you have unquestionably human footprints and many, many, many of these. Um, and they've been dated to between 21 and 23,000 years ago. And they're very convincing, but some archaeologists are um, unhappy with the way that they have been dated and want to see more evidence before they'll accept them as that old. Um, and then you know, but as you get move forward in time and you get closer and closer to the present, the sites tend to get a little bit less controversial. It's really easy to tell, okay, I've got a hearth here or I've got a projectile point here um, that is clearly human presence. That's clearly evidence of human presence. 
then you then you might have issues of stratigraphy or dating, but um, it's it's a little bit easier. So, kind of after thirteen thousand years ago, it's a little bit it's much less ambiguous. Then, so that's for archaeology. But then, when you're trying to reconcile this with genetics, um, we have problems with genetics because we don't have that many ancient genomes, and the the ancient genomes that we do have are not geographically there's no we don't have uniform geographic and temporal coverage um in the americas and so we're definitely missing a lot of information and drawing big inferences on the basis of the genomes that we do have and so far i think our models are pretty good but i do think we are missing a lot of data and then finally um we have in my field a long an unfortunate history of marginalizing indigenous knowledge and marginalizing scientists who come from indigenous communities and not doing a very good job, among other things, of reconciling uh, or attempting to reconcile our work with um, with indigenous peoples, or at the very least um, acknowledging that they have their own um, histories and their own evidence for, for um, their scientific claims. And so, um, that can lead to, I think, places where conversations get stuck or even worse, become pretty um, dismissive of Indigenous peoples. And so it, it's the, these are a lot of issues. There are a lot of it's very complicated. And my approach in origin was to be pretty clear about my positionality. So I am a scientist and I'm, I'm not Indigenous. Um, and so recognizing where my work fits within this broader tradition of marginalizing indigenous um, people's knowledge, um, I tried very consciously not to do that. And I also tried consciously not to put my interpretation forward as the only possible interpretation because my colleagues, I have colleagues who have very different views on how the Americas were peopled. And so I did my best to present their interpretations fairly um, while not shying away from critiquing things that I that I disagreed with. It sounds like an interesting book to have written to try and put all of these pieces together, some of which you are much closer to, and obviously some of which you're trying to evaluate at much more of a distance. It was kind of agonizing, to be honest. <laughs> but I did my best. <laughs> so let's talk about the genetics, because the genetics is definitely a big part of the book, and it's certainly a big part of your research. So let's dig into that question. Um, and can you give us maybe a quick primer on how genetics can be used to better understand this question and what we're sort of talking about when we're talking about trying to understand the his the sort of ancient history of human migration through genetics? Yeah. Um, so people have been using genetics um, in, in one version or another to understand biological histories for quite a long time. Um, this goes back all the way to like the late 70s, early 80s, when scientists would look at, you know, classical genetic markers, as they're called. So Frequencies of um, ABO blood types, for example, in populations or um, uh, different protein polymorphisms, right? Things. So the, the idea is that populations that share a common ancestor most recently ought to be genetically more genetically similar than populations that share a last common ancestor in the distant past. And it, it's just a question of, you know, what genetic markers are you going to look at? And so they started with these classical genetic markers. And 
specifically for the Americas, the idea was um, to try to understand how Native American indigenous peoples populations related to one another and how they related to other populations outside the Americas and, and hopefully being able to understand um, their origins, their biological origins on the basis of these comparisons. Um, that early work kind of shaped the foundations for later work and developed hypotheses along with archaeology that that later geneticists would be able to test with data that was much more high resolution. So first looking at um, DNA sequences from mitochondrial genomes and Y chromosome genomes or Y chromosomes, which give you um, maternal and paternal histories, respectively. Um, so uh, just to remind your listeners, the mitochondria, mitochondria are the energy producing um, organelles inside your cell, and they have their own genomes that are separate from the nuclear genome. And these genomes do not recombine. Um, and mitochondrial DNA, there are certain regions that accumulate mutations pretty rapidly because they're not subject to, they don't code for anything. So, um, and they're also only maternally inherited because um, they're, they're provisioned in the egg, right? And sperm do not uh, bring any mitochondria with them or they don't contribute any mitochondria rather to, to the fertilized egg. So mitochondrial genomes provide a rapidly mutating relatively um, uh, marker that you can look at that's maternally inherited. And so you can reconstruct population histories, maternal population histories by looking at these lineages and you can compare the frequency of different maternal lineages mitochondrial lineages in different populations, and you can kind of extrapolate that to the entire world if you want. And that has been done. Um, but they're limited, right? So they only show you a very small slice of history. Um, it's not inaccurate, but it's limited. Um, you can get kind of the opposite slice, a complementary slice of history by looking at Y chromosome DNA, which of course is inherited only paternally. And together, mitochondrial and Y chromosome studies showed that the, this Clovis first model was not correct, that the last common ancestor of, of Native Americans, both maternally and paternally, lived long before Clovis. Um, and, and that when you actually model population histories and population movements using these kinds of data, they did not match the model for the Clovis first thinking. So that and that became particularly relevant when people started getting being able to get mitochondrial lineages from ancient individuals as well, and um, being able to see to model this this population movement. Um, and it kind of shaped the way that we think about it, and has really held up when we were able to interrogate this with with even more powerful data, complete nuclear genomes, all the chromosomes you have, the DNA and all your chromosomes, um, and what these collectively what these different genetic systems show us is that there was a population there were that native americans descend from two major populations in um in asia and that there was they underwent a period of isolation the ancestors of native americans underwent a period of isolation and then they dispersed into the americas Starting roughly maybe about 17,000 years ago, um, we see an expansion of these populations and, and other 
genetic signals that suggest to us um, rapid migration and rapid expansion of a, a small founding group. Um, and so, you know, it, it really, at this point, it's a question of kind of filling in the details from that and seeing, can we identify other sources of ancestry and what are the, the specific population movements and things like that? So what goes into um, getting DNA out of an ancient, out of ancient remains, um, both on the site, and maybe that's someone else, um, and not generally your area. But um, I also am very excited for you to talk about the lab experience because this, for me, was very exciting to read about what goes on in the lab and that whole sort of process of getting into the lab, making sure everything's sterilized, the the very careful work of of extracting and processing DNA from ancient remains. That was fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been surprised at how many people have connected with that particular chapter. It was really funny. Um, yeah, because most people don't get to work in ancient DNA labs or even go into them. So I thought I would bring the reader in with me. Um, in fact, I don't get to work in the ancient DNA lab anymore very much. Um, so it was a lot of fun for me to go in. Um, so yeah, so the process of, of doing an ancient DNA project really starts not in the lab, not in the field, but really in consultations. So at least for our research group, and I know this is true of many research groups um, these days, it's not always been the case. It's still not the case with some research groups, but we only do research that on, on ancient individuals that's supported by um, descendant groups, living indigenous groups who are descended from that ancestor. Um, and that's really, really important. And we can have a whole discussion about the ethics of doing ancient DNA. Um, but for us, the work that we do, we recognize that it affects living people and that they should have a say. They should they should be the only ones who have a say in whether or not their ancestors' genomes should be investigated. And so we either reach out to a tribe or a community um, with whose ancestors we'd like to whose ancestors we'd like to study, or as is increasingly the case, um, a tribe or a community comes to us and asks us to work with them. Even in those cases, when a tribe is approaching us to do the work, um, there's still a lot of consultation and a lot of discussions that go into shaping a project because it's very important to us that the tribe's wishes with respect to how the research is done and what research questions are okay to ask and what should be done with the data um, and what should be done with the, the samples of DNA that we take, all of that, all of that has to be worked out in advance. Um, and so these discussions can go on for years, usually go on for years for us. And, and so our in our research group, it, the research goes pretty slowly because of that, but we want to do it the right way um, and prioritize that over speed. Anyway, um, so that's what really starts. <laughs> and then uh, and then going out into the, so sometimes we sample, um, once we have permission, sometimes we'll sample in the field as ancestors' remains are being excavated. And actually, it usually, if, if that, in those situations, it usually is one of us who goes out there, either one of the PIs, the principal investigators, or a, a senior graduate student um, will go out in the field and we'll put on all of our special gear, our bunny suits and our hairnets and our face masks and our gloves and our sleeve guards. 
we'll go out into the field and and we'll wear all of the clothing, um, the protective clothing that we need to guard against contaminating the sample that we take from the ancestor. Ancient DNA is fragmented and scarce. Most of the time, it's not even present in a sample that we collect. Um, but we want to protect it from contamination from with our own genomes, and our own DNA, which people shed constantly. So when we're field sampling, we wear all of this protective clothing. Sometimes we also will sample in a museum. Um, in many cases, uh, when ancestors' remains are being in the process of being returned to a descendant community under the NAGPRA process, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, um, where living community, present-day communities can, can um, get their ancestors' remains returned to them for reburial. A lot of times communities will ask us before we bury these, you know, can we, can we get DNA from them and study them? And in that case, we usually will sample in a museum, again, taking all the protective um, measures necessary to prevent contamination. When we have the ancestors' samples, and those are usually, um, for us, the best option is, is a tooth, um, although sometimes we will sample a little bit of bone, but it's, it's really very little material. Um, we will then take that into the lab, and our lab, as is other ancient DNA labs around, around the world, it's very, very carefully built, again, with the sole purpose of protecting these ancestral remains from being contaminated with our own DNA. And so the labs are um, positively pressurized. So if you think about a, um, a lab where people do pathogen research, right? In any movie you might've seen where they're you know, doing work in these labs, they have these suits on and they're masked and gloved and, and there's, there's um, air pressure. Instead of those kinds of labs are, instead of the air pressure going into the lab to, to keep material in the lab, ours flows out to try to flush as much uh, modern DNA as possible out of the space. We also have very powerful UV lights, ultraviolet lights in the ceilings that we turn on when we're done working to, um, to destroy any DNA that might be present. And we bleach everything, all the surfaces. We even bleach ourselves when we're going into the lab, although some labs think that's overkill. <laughs> we, we tend to do that. Um, just to make sure that there's no DNA on uh, modern DNA um, that could could contaminate these these remains, these samples of these remains. And then we work in the lab um, doing an extraction of uh, DNA from the the samples um, that it usually involves um, digesting the the bone or tooth sample with um, proteinase that will chew up the proteins. Well, first we mechanically grind it up and then we then we add proteinase to, chew up the proteins, and then uh, we run the result through a, a silica column. So DNA will bind to silica, and then we wash it to get rid of any uh, potential soil chemicals. And uh, eventually, you know, we have DNA. And then from there, it's just what we do with it is a question. Um, it depends on what, what our approach is, what our research question is. Most of the time, um, the samples that we take do not yield any DNA. Um, or they'll yield only um, microorganisms that are in the soil or or modern contaminants. Um, but when we're when we're really really lucky, sometimes we get we get what we call endogenous DNA or DNA from that ancestor. And uh, usually, what we're doing these days is building DNA libraries and either shotgun sequencing the whole all the all of the DNA molecules that are present in a sample, 
or we try to um, capture the DNA, um, different uh, bits of the DNA um, in a way that's analogous to fishing. So we have baits that we use to pull out specific DNA um, segments. Um, and what we do just kind of depends on the quality of the DNA, how much is present, and what we're trying to understand um, from that genome. So when you say most of the time you don't get that sort of gold nugget you're finding for, what's the like hit rate at a sort of numbers level of the success of sort of getting that that ideal? Yeah, it really depends on where the ancestors were living and what kind of environmental conditions their remains were in. Um, we do a lot of work in the Arctic and the North American Arctic, and usually preservation there is pretty good. So DNA preserves best in cold, dry climates. Um, so the Arctic is lovely. Um, I'm also doing some work um, in the mid-continental United States, and there the preservation is much less good. <laughs> so we, I, I think we have, um, oh, I don't know, maybe, definitely less than 50% have uh, sequenceable genomes. Um, in the Arctic, it can be more like, I don't know, 60, 70%. So. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, actually, um, it is. we're happy about that. <laughs> I super duper absolutely want to talk about the Arctic um, because I am from Canada, so it is geographically close to my heart. Um, but also, I think this part is quite fascinating. Um, and you dug into more detail on the kind of peopling of the Arctic than I think I had ever read before. A lot of what I have read and a lot of what I knew uh, before picking up your book was about the migration south. Um, so it was really interesting to read more about the peopling of the Arctic because that was, I didn't really know anything about that. So can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I would love to. Um, and that's actually, yeah, I, I I think I see the the later peopling of the Arctic. So it occurs much later then, as you say, the, the migration is farther south because most of the Arctic was covered by these ice sheets, right? Alaska was kind of um, somebody, and I forget who referred to it as sort of a cul-de-sac, right? It was it was unglaciated during um, the last glacial maximum, which I guess I should explain what that is. <laughs> so this was a period um, between about 26 and 20,000 years ago, which uh, where the global temperatures were very, very cold and so much water was bound up in these massive ice sheets that there was a lot of desert too. So across the Northern hemisphere, you have just very, very dry conditions and very cold conditions. And it was, um, as a result, the distribution of plants and animals and humans was much different than it is today. So what's fascinating to me is that there were people living in, in the Arctic, above the Arctic circle in Siberia by about 30,000 years ago, which is just blows my mind, but they were, they were thriving at this site called Yana rhinoceros horn site um, in, in Siberia. There were, I mean, it was, it was actually quite a big population there. And we have genomes from two children who were, who lost their teeth, their, their baby teeth uh, at this site. Um, and these genomes show us that it was a very, um, very rel relatively quite large population, at least compared to the Neanderthals who were living in the Altai mountains uh, they had very small populations. They were very inbred. So there's something very interesting going on, an interesting difference between uh, Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans at the same period of time, more or less. Anyway, um, so people were above the Arctic Circle and adapted for Arctic living, at least culturally, if not physically, 
um, quite early on, but it's really hard to tell because we don't have a lot of evidence. It's really hard to tell whether they where exactly what their distribution was um, in across Beringia, across the Bering Land Bridge, and in Alaska. We just do not have really good evidence, or at least we don't have any uncontroversial evidence of people living there anywhere else except Yana, this, this one site in Siberia. Um, so the last glacial maximum ends, and so we know that people were isolated between 22,000 and 18,000 years ago, which kind of co- uh corresponds to the last the peak of the last glacial maximum and we can talk about where they might have been you know if you're interested but the last glacial maximum ends routes into the americas open up through these the melting of these glaciers as the earth is warming people move south but then later much much later people a succession of migrations start peopling um the north american arctic and so what we can tell archaeologically, and we have quite good archaeological evidence of this, is that there was a group of people um, who archaeologists refer to as the Paleo-Inuit, and they migrate from probably from Kamchatka um, into across the, the Arctic, getting to the Eastern Arctic about 5,000 to 4,500 years ago, give or take. So at this point, there's no land connection between Alaska and Siberia. It's, it's the Bering Strait. It is underwater. Um, but people are traveling back and forth quite a bit between it. Um, and so we have the Paleo-Inuit migrating across, and then they, um, they're they living in this area for quite some time, although they leave a very faint archaeological footprint. Um, they probably had small population sizes, um, but they we know from their um, archaeology that they, they had kayaks, that they lived, they hunted marine and terrestrial animals. Um, they had bows and arrows. Um, they had very tiny stone tools. Um, it's called the Arctic small tool, small tool tradition. Um, anyway, so they're living, they're living across the North American Arctic. And then later, much later, the ancestors of present day Arctic peoples, our indigenous peoples of the Arctic, um, migrate in a second migration. And this is really, really fascinating. So this is a group um, that they're called sometimes the Thule or they're called the Neo-Inuit or Ancestral Inuit because they're very clearly, we know this both technologically um, and according to uh, culture histories um, and also genetically, they're, they're the direct ancestors of present day indigenous peoples of the Arctic. And so about 800 years ago, they emerge across the Arctic and they move very, very rapidly from Alaska to Greenland. So over the span of just a few centuries. And these ancestral um, Inuit peoples were whale hunters and they also hunted other marine mammals. Um, And so they bring the dog sled and the umiak, the particular kind of kayak that's still used to hunt whales. Um, And they cross the Arctic and they interact with the paleo Inuit in various ways um, but we don't have a lot of evidence of that interaction necessarily. We just know that shortly after the Thule or the, the ancestral Inuit arrive, the Paleo-Inuit seem to disappear archaeologically. So one of the major questions that's been out there for a while is, was you know, did they just absorb the Paleo-Inuit populations? Was there interbreeding between these two groups? Or did they displace them? Like, what, what happened there? Um, and it really, that's really a 
biological question as much as it is an archaeological question. And so a lot of the work that our research group has done and other research groups have done is, is looking for evidence of um, intermarriage between these two groups. Luckily for us, they're quite genetically distinct from one another. So we can actually tell pretty clearly if, if there has been um, a gene flow between these groups. And what we've seen is that for the most part, no, but in some places, yes. So of course, there's always, you know, this ambiguity, right? There's but, always the, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's always, the, it's complicated. But so far, what we can tell is there has been um, intermarriage and inter um, gene flow between these two groups in some places, but not at all. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons I liked this section is it really clearly illustrates uh, this idea that we, I know I, I say we, I forget all the time, which is we tend to think of a migration as like one activity. It was a thing that happened this one time. Um, but the what we know about the peopling of the Arctic is is about this. It's not a one-time thing. It's not just it happened once and it never happens again. There were waves of migration. It's a period of time that people were moving um, around this part of the world. Uh, and and that story, I think, really kind of drove that home in a way that I hadn't really internalized before. Yeah, it's um, so and I think that, you know, it's understandable that you and others would would see this as like a, you know, an event, right? A single event, because that's how we portray them in our scientific publications, right? We have maps and we draw arrows on them. Um, and it, you know, and we'll say, oh, it's this or it's that very oversimplified models, right? Um, even talking about waves of migration, I think is an oversimplification, because if you think about a person's lifetime, think about your own life and how many times you've moved, you know, away from where you started, um, you know, and, and the decisions that were made, as part of that process and the interactions you had and, you know, people's lives are complicated and it's really what we're looking at when we're using genetics to reconstruct migrations is we're, we're taking a very, very distant perspective and looking at the aggregate of many, many people's lives and their decisions and, and the sex that they had and the children that they had, right. And in different localities. And so what is probably such a much more messy, well, definitely is a much more messy process than our arrows on maps and people are moving around and they're going back to, you know, their family, their, the family that of origin, you know, in the spring, and then they're moving somewhere else in the fall and, you know, um, people, move in one place and then they go back and, you know, or they, or they just keep going and they never look back. You know, it's, it's all very messy um, in a, in a really beautiful way, I think. Um, but our, I think our arrows on maps really obscure that fact. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you always have to try and tell a simple story because there's value sometimes in a simple story in certain situations, but it does often, it's so easy to just take that as the story and not just the simple Cliff's Notes version of the story. Yes. And one of the things that has, I found to be really great when I do this work, um, and, and just especially in the Arctic, because that's what I've been doing most recently is, you know, I'll, I'll find a genetic result like, oh, I see that these mitochondrial lineages are shared in this particular pattern between these particular villages. And I'll talk to the people who live in these villages and be like, oh, yeah, that's because of this, right? We have, we, we know why that is, and here's why. And so it's really lovely when we can meld the genetic data with, um, with traditional knowledge or, or just simply, you know, um, indigenous 
histories and scientific knowledge. Um, and it's sometimes, like I said, sometimes they agree and sometimes they don't, but you know, it's a lot of times what we're finding with genetics is things that people already knew. And, you know, that's, that's also nice. And it's, it's humbling as a, a, a non-native geneticist to, it's a good reminder that, that these, these projects, this scientific research always needs to start with the community's interests and knowledge, not kind of tack that on as an afterthought, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I think as well, it's um, a reminder for all of us who are very science savvy, who are very science minded, who love and talk about science. We do have a tendency as a sort of mass group to sort of discard oral history and oral traditions as suitably robust evidence. But you do talk in your book about um, a bunch of different times where actually when we dig into the quote unquote hard science and get the genetic evidence, it actually matches quite well with the oral traditions, like you said. And I think that's a really important potent reminder for those of us who have a tendency to really be flippant about oral histories. Yes. And I wish that we were more developed. We geneticists were more developed in our methods for working with indigenous knowledge holders. Um, I think that we're moving in that direction. But um, just in talking to some people who want to see more of that kind of research being done, they're like, why aren't you doing this? And I'm like, well, I don't have the knowledge base that Indigenous knowledge holders have. And I don't know really how to do this. I don't have the methods for doing this. Um, We need them. I see the need for this, but we're not there yet. Um, How we get there, I don't know, Um, but I would like to see it. I, I don't want to make the claim so there's two claims I don't want to make. I don't want to make the claim that every single, you know, bit of traditional history is going to necessarily match genetics or that I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I also don't want to make the claim that genetics or other scientific approaches should be used to validate indigenous mm. knowledge. That's really not our place at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, these two, I see these things as two different knowledge systems. They can be independent. It would be great if we could work together because I feel like in in many ways, we geneticists are asking naive questions or we're going about this in very um, maybe not very efficient ways. Right. And so that's why I like to work directly with communities at the start of a project and go, okay, what do you know? What do you want to find out? What, you know, where, where can we go with this and co-design research and also with archeologists, right? I don't want my work to be, let me go find the oldest genome I can find. And then, then we'll start waving our hands and telling stories about it and maybe bring some archeologists in at the end. I mean, that, I don't think that that's good science. I want it to be question driven. And and those questions should start at the beginning of a project and, and involve multiple groups with different kinds of knowledge coming together to kind of look at, okay, what's interesting. What do we already know? What do we need to test? What do we think we know, but maybe we're not certain of, you know, stuff like that. So I think there are more efficient ways to go about it than than what we have been doing. Um, but I do think we are progressing in the right direction from the genetic standpoint, I hope. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. It's always hard to say. And I think as well, um, sometimes efficiency isn't the best goalpost. Yeah, true, true. But then again, like if we're just continually finding out things that indigenous peoples already know, right? And they're like, yeah, we have mm-hmm. all this. Or archaeologists, right? Who I don't mean these to be exclusively different groups, right? But yeah. 
Yeah. If we're we're finding stuff out and archaeologists are like, okay, that was a really dumb question. We already have evidence of X, Y, and Z. Why are you, you know? Right. Or same for, from a indigenous community perspective, you know, then I'm like, well, maybe we're not, you know, going about framing our research the way we should um, in the, in perhaps the best way, but you know, we're talking theoretically. I mean, (laughs) it's having, yeah, yeah. And, and I get what you're saying about having, if you have all the stakeholders around the table to use horrible business speak, everybody, everybody, (laughs) you know, bear with me. I work in a business. You have all the stakeholders around the table. You can quite often get to better questions, a better approach, more interesting stuff if you have all of the relevant people talking yes. together and starting a project. So I totally understand how that absolutely would apply here because there's different points of view, there's different interests, there's different contexts, and they're all completely relevant. Yes, you said that much better than I did. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, how can you tell I've been spending too much time in business discussions? <laughs> um I was also fascinated to find out how much we don't know about Alaska um, because Alaska is kind of this key spot along that simple arrow that you've talked about drawing. Um, Finding out that actually there's a lot of frustration about the archaeological archaeology of Alaska was fascinating to me and how we actually don't have a ton of uncontroversial evidence from Alaska. That really surprised me. Yeah. So especially when we're talking about the really early periods of time. Um, so I, <laughs> I really struggled with that chapter because I did not know the early archaeology of Alaska very well, or Bringia, I guess I should say, because at that point, you know, we're not talking just Alaska, but we're talking about, you know, um, central Bringia, which would have been the land connection, right, between Siberia and um, North America. Um, and also Siberia. And so, so I'm going through this literature and trying to read this archaeological literature and understanding the difference between these different, um, these different complexes. And, you know, I, and any archaeologist in the, the audience is just shaking their head right now. Cause they're like, of course it's obvious. I'm like, no, it's not for me. Um, so <laughs> I'm not going to reiterate all of that because it'll be mm-hmm. kind of agonizing, but um, I really had to understand trying to understand what is the Denali complex? What is the Juktai complex? I'm very, very lucky to have, um, we have archaeologists in our department who recently joined us, um, Ted Gable and Kelly Graff, who are experts at this. And so I relied on them a lot. Um, But yeah, trying to understand, we see all these different kinds of stone tools, these stone tool industries at these different sites, the ranging from, you know, 14,200 years ago is the earliest sites, one point to, you know, like less than 13,000 years ago and trying to understand the relationships. What, you know, what does these mean when you have this kind of stone tool at this site at this period of time, but then later you have a different kind of stone tool and then you see it over here at this site, you know, how do these all relate to each other? And there are a couple of, you know, different interpretations and and people have very different views on, on how, what this archaeology tells us about the early history of Alaska. And what's especially frustrating for me, and I think for archaeologists perhaps, is that this, I don't know that the archaeology of Alaska, and, and people will disagree with me, but that it speaks to the peopling of the Americas in a straightforward way. So the very earliest uncontroversial evidence of people in um, 
in Siberia, in Alaska, specifically the Alaska part of Siberia, is dates only to 14,200 years ago. And that's the Swan Point site. I hope I didn't get that wrong. But anyway, um, it's it's very, it's recent, right? And that's what led some archaeologists to really believe that the peopling of the Americas was a fairly recent event um, because you just don't have, but then there are some sites that you do have evidence of people at um, earlier, but they're ambiguous. So we have, for example, um, perhaps evidence of people butchering animals at um, this site uh, in the Yukon um, called Bluefish Caves, but it was excavated a long time ago. And, you know, there's some questions about whether or not these are real uh, cut marks on bones and what is the stratigraphy, right? So we have um, folks from our department actually, and some others working at that site again to re-excavate it and excavate new areas. And hopefully we'll find out more. Um, but so Bluefish Caves might be evidence of an early human presence um, in the Americas, maybe, uh, in Siberia. There's a couple of others that have evidence, but it's kind of ambiguous and, you know, a lot of very controversial. So it's just really hard. There's just not enough. And, and part of that is there's just not very many sites that have been excavated. Um, it's Alaska and Canada, you know, Siberia, these are all very remote. These are areas that are quite remote. There's not a lot of, um, road construction, which is what often turns up, uh, unfortunately, archaeological sites um, in, in the United States, at least. And so it, it, there's just a lot of ambiguity and um, lack of evidence there. Genetics should help with this. Um, and, and I'm excited to see where the field goes in the future. But in the meantime, it's um, it can be very frustrating and, and confusing, at least for me. <laughs> What for you as somebody working in the field are some of the most interesting, outstanding questions that you're kind of keeping your eye on or that you'd love to dig into, or maybe oh, already are? That is a great question. Um, okay. So I, two things come to mind immediately. So one of them is this really fascinating genetic signal that has seen in South America. So in some, not all, but some South American genomes from living peoples and ancient peoples, you can see this signal of affinity, genetic affinity with peoples in Australasia. That has, I mean, immediately the first thing that springs to mind is, oh, there must have been a trans-Pacific migration from, you know, Australasia to that's South a That's a long trip. It is a long trip, but, you know, people have done it. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, and that seems like the most straightforward response, but actually it turns out not. I won't get into the nitty gritty of this, but not too much. But if you actually look at the distribution of these, the segments of the genome that carry this signal um, within individuals and also the individuals geographically who have this signal, it doesn't match the pattern that we would expect if you model it, if you model that migration, you know, genetically doesn't, doesn't match that. These um, genomic segments are really, um, they're old. They see, they seem to have come from an old migration that probably the best models show either matches a signal of people in the Americas before the, the major migration of first peoples. So 
before 17,000 years ago or something. So it may have been that there was a group of people in the Americas that had this ancestry really early and that the, the people migrating down presumably the West Coast, we can argue about that, but presumably down the West Coast uh, would encounter them and have children with them. And that's how that those that genomic segment gets in there, right? Um, or there was a... St- there was a structured population. So there were people um, who were isolated during the height of the last glacial maximum. The ancestors of Native Americans were isolated for some period of time and that perhaps some of them had this ancestry and others didn't. So both of those possibilities right now with our current evidence are equally likely. Um, And so I'm really interested to see if we can distinguish between them as we identify perhaps more ancient individuals with this signal of this ancestry. One of the other reasons that I and most uh, geneticists don't think that this is the result of a trans-Pacific migration is that this ancestry is also seen in at least one ancient individual from China, one of the oldest, maybe the oldest ancient genome from an anatomically modern Homo sapiens, I think it might be the oldest, um, that has been sequenced. Um, And this individual has that ancestry as well. And so what this probably hints at is that there was once a ancient population, very old population of people who have this ancestry that's just no longer there. And that it was widely distributed across East Asia. And that both the ancestors of Native Americans, the population that would become ancestral Native Americans in East Asia, and population that becomes ancestral to present day Australasians, that they both have that, at least some of that ancestry. I hope that makes sense. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's a very interesting, that's a very interesting puzzle for that, that can only be solved, I think, with additional um, genomes and, you know, trying to characterize where this ancestry is. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing that I'm really, really interested in, and it may not be unrelated, um, is this white sand site that I mentioned earlier. So. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the site that potentially dates to between 21, 23,000 years ago, long before people are supposed to be in the Americas, right? We don't have any other sites that are quite as convincing as White Sands. White Sands is has human footprints, many, many, many human footprints spanning, if we believe the dates, several thousand years. People were using this site. They were walking around. Um, and a lot of these footprints are actually of children and young people. So it's, it's, there's some really fascinating, you know, I, uh, questions about site use and different activity patterns between adults and children. But anyway, um, White Sands, if the dates hold up, shows us that there was at least one group of people in the Americas and they would have had to have been there at before 25,000 years ago. When, because that's when the ice sheets fuse. And unless there's some other route into the Americas that we're not aware of, you know, nobody is getting into the Americas, uh, you know, um, after 25,000 years ago until about 17,000 years ago. So the question is who were these people? And, you know, what, what did they look like genetically? And we have no idea. The controversy about White Sands is that. The footprints themselves were dated um, by carbon-14 dating, radiocarbon dating, the seeds, a particular kind of seed that was plant seed that was squished into the mud as people were walking on it. And that particular kind of plant sometimes returns older, often returns older dates than it actually is. So 
Um, I know that the archaeologists who excavated the site, they they claim they have control for this, and I believe them. I, I know that they're they're very good archaeologists. They're trying very hard to to be accurate. I think they I know that they were trying other forms of dating to see if they could get independent evidence. Um, but I haven't heard anything recently, so I don't know what's going on there. Um, and so we're just kind of waiting to find out if that can be convincingly demonstrated as uh, human presence 20, you know, before 25,000 years ago, we have to account for that genetically because it doesn't match really well our genetic patterns. Maybe though, that was population Y that, that that's the name we use to refer to this ancestry we see in South Americans, um, that matches that's related to South, um, Australasians. Maybe that's population Y. Maybe it's some other group, right? We don't know. Um, and I want to stress how few genomes we actually have from indigenous people's ancestors, especially in the United States, what is today the United States and Canada. There's a lot of data that we don't have. So we don't really have a full picture of the genetic variation present in the first peoples. Um, and I think until we do well, we'll never have enough, but until we do have a better idea, you know, our models are going to be lacking. Um, and so the models that we present are the best, our best interpretation of, of the evidence that we have right now. Um, so, but there's a long way to go. And so those are the things I'm really excited about. I mean, we started earlier making fun of like the history channel, but I kind of see where it comes from. I'm not, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying I can kind of see where they get the interesting pitch from um, because there's so many interesting ideas there and it does kind of strike at the imagination, doesn't it? It sure does. And that's fine. I mean, I think it's wonderful to be curious and imaginative. I just wrote an article about this. Um, and and I think that it's wonderful to embrace a, a respectful curiosity. Um, but, you know, you have to temper it with... Um, some some judgment as far as evidence goes. And, you know, we don't have evidence of ancient Atlanteans or, you know, <laughs> any ancestry present in Native Americans from, say, European populations. We don't have the uh, pre-1492. No evidence of that. In fact, quite the opposite. So, you know, um, it's it's important not to impose this sort of romanticism on and, and this um, really, really long-standing tradition, at least in the United States, of claiming that the first peoples of the Americas were not the ancestors of Native Americans, right? This is a, this is an old tool of colonialism. It's an, Unfortunately, it has been around for a long time. Um, this idea that, oh, the first peoples in the Americas were like ancient Welsh sailors or um, Vikings. I mean, there were Vikings, but, you know, in a limited, very limited geographic region, right? Um, and they were certainly not the first peoples here. Um, or uh, ancient Greeks or, you know, um, ancient Israelites or this mythical Atlantean migrant, you know, there's all sorts of stories made up about who the first peoples of the Americas were and who actually made the incredible monuments and, and um, artworks and, and accomplishments and technologies of, of the first peoples that we see. And there is absolutely no evidence that it's anything other than they were anything other than the ancestors of indigenous peoples today. Um, and so I think it's really unfortunate when we, when our society makes up these ridiculous stories about, about the past, um, I think it can be very harmful, actually. I agree. And I think one of the things that stands out to me is that this, the puzzles that you have just told us about are, to me, 
just as interesting, if not more so, than the sort of fairy tale that people tend to lean into. There's really interesting mysteries there that can be talked about and can be um documentaries can be made about like that that to me is is as interesting or more interesting than some of that other stuff because there's more there to support it uh so i find it really interesting that i mean i guess i know obviously why we tend to cling to a lot of that stuff it's bad uh for <laughs> sure but also there is so much interesting stuff actually there to look at yeah. And I think from, you know, from a scientific perspective, well, if you want to take a scientific perspective, you have to be able to articulate, how would my model be falsified, right? Like, mm -hmm. what kind of evidence do I need to see in order to demonstrate that I'm wrong? And we need to be able to embrace not just ambiguity, like we've been talking about quite a lot <laughs> in this in this discussion, but also the possibility that you might be wrong. Um, and that has happened again and again and again in the history of scientific research on the first peoples of the Americas. Um, models have, have been demonstrated to be wrong. And so it is kind of discipline, um, and it can be difficult some days to not fall in love with your own models and your own mm. hypotheses, but you have to really be strong about that and say, okay, I, I realize I'm wrong and I, or at least in advance say, okay, I know I'm going to be, if if I'm, if I'm wrong, if I'm right, I'll see this. If I'm wrong, I'll see this. And you have to just be honest about that. Um, and I think that's a, that's something that is very difficult as humans for many of us to, to do. Um, and I think it's, but I think it's really important if you're trying to distinguish good scientific research from bad scientific research or pseudoscience, right? You just have to ask, okay, ask the person who's making the claim, how, what would demonstrate that you're wrong? You know, what would convince you that you're wrong? And if they have an answer, okay, you, you might be able to, you know, go deeper. If they don't have an answer, they say, oh, nothing, nothing will show me that I'm wrong. Well, then, you know, that's, uh, that, that tells you something important. <laughs> I mean, I will say in my non- strictly scientific job, some of the most interesting days I've had are when I'm looking through data for work and I'm assuming I'll find something and I don't find it. And then I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. That, that is contrary to everything that we have thought over the, wait, what? And then I follow that thread and then find something almost always really fascinating and way more interesting than the thing we thought was happening. Yes. So for me, I get just as excited about a piece of evidence that that overturns an idea as I do about one that confirms it because the overturning kind of forces you if you're open to it to just expand and follow a thread which I I I personally always find really interesting. Yeah, very well said. It's exactly true. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a really interesting book and uh, it's been great having you back. Thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me on again. It's been great. And if you want to learn more about Jennifer Raff, her work, her writing, or her book, Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, check our podcast notes for links to click. You will find these notes as usual in the podcast app you're using right now or at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. 
The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 